if I were to ask you about the book of uh, Judges, and I were to ask you to go and think about it and tell me what you know about it and scratch your head, you maybe if you're anything like me, you would come back with the character of Samson. Maybe that would be the first place you'd go, I don't know. I don't know how well read you are of this book. And you would think things like, okay, big muscles, uh, long hair, uh, acts of great bravery, heroism, and eventually tricked in the end, uh, sort of came good. You would think something like that. We, we know this story. We know about this story, not just because it happened. It did happen. The Bible's telling us it did happen. But because it's been... This is something we'll look at. The text is going to be really helpful today because it's been crafted. This is a campfire story told over and over again and then one that the Sunday school teachers and others have fallen in love with and repeated. So it's become this story that is really familiar to us. But if I also ask you to shuffle around in the text a little bit more or to scratch your head a little bit more and think a little bit more about what Samson was, you'll remember that he was essentially a mass murderer. Pretty much, he was a mass murderer. He killed innocent men at random in a fit of temper. He was, and got, you, you've got to get into this text. It's so good. It's so good. He was an arsonist. Essentially, he set foxes on fire and caused chaos with them. He was misogynistic. Nobody seemed to do very well by the women in these stories. And he didn't keep any of the Nazarite vows. And when you, if you, if you spend some time thinking about these stories and these judges, you, you come back with the question. I think, I think it's a reasonable question to come back with now that you're at church. You go, why, why, are, why are you teaching me this? Why, why would you do this? Why would, hang on, this is getting lower every second. If there's anyone who can make this not get lower, that would be grand. Why, why are you teaching me this? Why, why, why are you drawing my eyes here? If I was to ask you, so just park that a second. Why are, we, why are you teaching me this? If I was to ask you your favorite, or not your favorite, the, the most successful British author, playwright of all times, you'd probably think of Shakespeare. And if I was to ask you for his most famous work, you would probably say Romeo and Juliet. And then when you thought, if, if I was to say right off the top of your head, what's Romeo and Juliet about? You would say, oh, that's a lovely story. That's, that's, that's romance. That's handsome Romeo. That's him doing whatever it takes to get the girl. That's that scene on the balcony. You might even think in your head, oh, I wish my life had a little bit more of that kind of romance in it. But the story, the story ends tra tragically. And if you're anything like me studying GCSE English, you read through, you think, why have I spent a year reading through this story only to, you know, to be... Why, why has the bard taken me down this direction where I'm engaged with all this, especially at 16, all this romantic stuff, only for it to end tragically? What, what's, what's the point of that? Why, why, why do I do that? Judges is like this. Judges gets us to ask these kind of questions. We, we come across these, we, we are sold and have been sold over the years, if you've been to church for a while, these stories of these characters that we fall in love with like romanticized these murderers almost, and we go, oh, this is amazing. And you kind of got to ask yourself, if, if, if you come in here or if the kind of, you know, if, if you listen to the pastor and the pastor's saying to you, and the ultimate aim being, I, I want you to forgive your, I want you to forgive other people, I want you to love your neighbor, I want you to be this kind, nice, gentle person. If, if that's where we're headed, 
Because essentially, you know, you read through the words of Jesus, forgive your neighbor, you know, love, love other people, all this sort of stuff. If, if that's where we're headed, then why, why, why are we here? Why would, we, why would we spend any time? Why does it even exist? How on earth is it in the Bible? These are the sorts of questions that you can ask. And I've got a couple of reasons, I think, that you should, that I want to give you as reasons that we should engage with a story like this. So it's three reasons, really. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to name them ahead of time now so you've got them, so you can park them, and then I'm going to come back to them a little bit later on. So it's three reasons. In the mad chaos of life, here's reason number one. The main thing is our salvation. In the mad chaos of life, in the mad, and it is like a billion distractions, as soon as we leave here, or maybe even here, the main thing, this is one of the things the stories will remind us of, the main thing is, is our need to be saved. That's the first thing. Second thing, God does and ultimately will use the humble things of this world to shame the proud. God does and ultimately will, will use the humble things of this world to shave, to shave, to save the proud. And the third thing is that God wants your heart. So those are, those are the three reasons we'll come back to them. Now, where I'm going to go at the start, I'm going to come back and t- I'm, going to, I'm going to tell you the story. So I've been digging into this text for the last month or so, and the more I dig into it, the more I realize what the nature of these stories are, what the, the nature of this text is. It is not just information being relayed. These are beautifully crafted stories told time after time after time to get the people to think. But you've got to remember back in the day when this is all written down, they didn't have entertainment the likes of what we have today. Our stories are told on Netflix and the rest of it. In these times and in these places, there were great storytellers who wanted who, who didn't just want you, but were able to have you hanging on their every word. And that's what this is. So we're going to treat this like a story. So I'm going to try and lay it on you like you're there. So take off, you know, drop your mobile phone and put on your Hebrew sandals, that kind of thing. I want you to immerse yourself in the story and maybe get some of the sense of it. And then I'm going to give you those three points back at the end. So if you put the text up, I'm going to, I'm going to go right through it because it's so awesome. Again, and I, I don't, I'm looking around. I know there's been encouragements on social media for you to read it through ahead of time. Can I add uh, to Paul's encouragement last week that you should stay in this story? This is really good uh, text. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel, getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him. Eglon came and attacked Israel and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. So this is not a, it's not a happy start. This is a, this is a, let's, everyone's around the campfire. I want, you to, I want to get you to listen in. I want to, to get you to empathize. We all have this shared story. Do you remember the times when we were subject to King Eglon. Do you remember that? And, and So everyone, everyone get around the campfire. They're all like heads droop. Yeah, remember that. That was a terrible time. We were, we were subject. I mean, it's hard for us to, to grasp, I think, in our times. But imagine being subject to another nation. Another nation coming in. You know, if, if you're from a different part of the world, this will be your story more than it is perhaps our story. And, and just hearing that in the back of your mind will, will cause you to go, oh, yeah. So everybody in the room will be nodding. Yes, we remember that time. Story goes on. Again, the Israelites, verse 15, again, the Israelites 
cried out to the Lord and he gave them a deliverer. And this is brilliant. Ehud, listen to the introduction of Ehud. Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the Benjamite. So we start somber. And then I, I almost imagine this, because I, I love a good yarn. I almost imagine the storyteller just pausing for a second and then going, and look, yes, it was terrible, but God heard our cries. And he brought to us, and everyone's like, okay, who's he going to bring? Who's going to save us? Ehud, the, left, the left-handed man from the tribe of Benjamin. But hold on. Is, that, is, this just a, is this just information for the sake of information? No, it's not. Remember, this is, this is a story being told. And this story in particular is a great, I think it's a couple of things. I think it slots under a couple of genres. It's a great whodunit. So it's got a little bit of whodunit, a little bit of detective in it. It's got a little bit of comedy in it. It's got adventure. It's got all that kind of thing. A comic book hero, all that kind of thing in it. So you read, you read that first bit of detail and you think that's an odd detail. Two reasons I think we can, we can just hold on to the left-handed detail for a, for, a, for a moment. First of all, got to imagine this character. So I'm, I'm a lefty. So I, get to, I think that means I get to talk about lefties. And even now... Being a lefty, there's a little bit of stigma, being a, being a left-handed guy, okay? Um, but that's nothing to how it was in these times. If you are a left-handed person, so the, this, this storyteller is really crafting a story. No idle detail in here. If you're a left-handed person, you are at best dis, a dysfunctional person, or you are disabled, or you are cursed, or something like this. That, that's, that's what this guy is. And not only is he that, listen to the way the author describes him. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. He's from the least of the tribes. So what this storyteller is getting us to think is, okay, here's the savior, but he's, he's a bit of a mixed up nobody from nowhere. That's the first thing you've got as the story starts to spread. And also, I think the way that he's telling the story here is this is supposed to be a, bit, a little bit of an appetizer. Trying to, so we're not even into it yet, but he's trying, to, he's trying to get you to think ahead of time. Do you know when you, so I'm feeling quite old, and I watch Death in Paradise, Death in Paradise, I, you know, I'm, that's what I do. I watch it, and I love it. I'm not, unashamedly, I love it. But if you've watched any of those sort of detective dramas, you'll notice at the start, the first couple of minutes are crucial, because they drop loads of detail in. And if, you, and if, you, if you're one of these freaks like me, who watches Death in Paradise religiously on a Thursday night, you think, I've got to be there for the first 10 minutes, because if they're going to drop those details in, I'll not be able to know who done it later on. That's how this story goes. You, you hear the left-handed detail, and you think, I need, I need to watch the end of this. It's a little bit like a more, uh, a, a more eager, a, a better analogy for me to use would be the James Bond analogy. There's, there's a scenes at the start of James Bond, they don't do it as much anymore, with the guy Q, when he will give him some kind of gadget, have you seen these, these at the start, and they give him some sort of pen, and you'll, you'll think in the back of your head, you'll be like, this, later on in the film, this pen is going to kill the, he's gonna kill the guy. That's what's going to happen. And, and, and you'll kind of, in that, because you know that detail at the start, you'll, you'll sort of warm to the film more, because you can watch it all the way through going, I know. Well, and you kind of enjoy the moment when he gets the pen out, you're like, yes, I'm with you. That's what's going on in this story. The storyteller saying, watch out for the left-handed guy. The Israelites, verse 15, sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long. A cubit, I think it's about that long. Something like that, could be, could be wrong. 
I'm, you know, that's, that's vague enough for me to be a bit out, isn't it? Something like that. It's a, it's a big enough, it's, if it's a blade, it's a big enough blade, let's put it that way, which he strapped. Now listen to, listen to the detail in the story here. Left-handed guy, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. They want you to be totally immersed in the detail of this story. And then comes a little bit of the comedy, verse 17. He presented the tribute to Eglong, Eglong, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. What's going on here? The tribute comes. So this is something like, and maybe, maybe Ehud got picked for this job because he's a lefty, and you're a lefty, you're a bit more despised. The tribute comes, it's probably some food or produce or something like that, and a team of people will carry it in and drop it there before the king. Now what you've got to, what you've got to imagine as the story's been told, as that bit of detail spreads around, is the growing hysteria around the campfire of this because he's got a bit of the Eddie the Eagle about him, I think, as Ehud. As, as the more I watch him, he's a bit of the unlikely hero. Do you know what I mean? That you're really rooting for. And as you're listening to this story being portrayed, you're like, yes, look at, look at this little guy go. Look at the lefty from ben, the tribe of Benjamin go. He, this fat king, is, as he's described, and there's a reason for that. We'll come to it in a second. He's got no idea what's coming. And he can sort of feel the building excitement of the story going. Verse 18, after Ehud... And I feel like I'm changing the way that these names are said as every time I read them out. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglong, Eglon and said, Your Majesty, and this is, straight out of, this is straight out of the James Bond stuff, if you ask me. Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, Leave us. And they all left. So you're, not, you're already thinking this guy's a... If you're listening to the story, you're already on page. You're already, this guy's a total legend. But now he, he moves up another notch. Because what, if I'm there and I'm going to pick a fight with this king, I'm going to have as many mates around me as I can. That's when I'm going to... That's when I'm going to... If I'm going to stab him, it's going to happen there. Not Ehud. Ehud's extra brave. He waits till they all... You know, you can imagine they, all, they drop the tribute off. They walk back. Everybody walks back. Ehud turns around at these stones and comes back. And not only does he come back, he makes his way with these vast armies all around him into the palace, in, right into the center of the temple courts, as it were, right into the middle. And he sat opposite King Eglon. And all the people listening in are like, yes, you've got no idea what's coming. Ehud, verse 20, then approached him. while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his, notice the detail again, he reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out and the fat closed in over him. Let's just have a little note on King Eglon. I, the Bible's not fattest here. It's not just trying to have a go for the sake of having a go. This guy is symbolic. This guy is symbolic of the kind of guys and you can, you'll think of your own guys as I, as I describe them who, who are who have become, because of their wealth or power or position, 
and there'll be somebody in the paper who fits this description, who become untouchable. Do you know that idea? Who just get to the point in life where they, they think they can do anyone, do anything. They can do whatever they want. They float above the law and they become untouchable. And this guy, in the middle of his own palace, with, with vast collaborated armies all around him, is completely undone by the nobody from nowhere who stabs him in the belly and turns the whole story around. Then he had went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he'd gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, and again, this is where I think, I've read, I read a bunch of commentaries on this, and I, I think it's Dale Ralph Davies, who I'd refer you to if you, want to, if you want to read about this, dig into him. He says, this is supposed to be funny. We're supposed to get the humor of this. We're supposed to celebrate the hero as we get the comedy of this moment. He must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. They waited to the point of embarrassment, but when he did not open the doors, it's like dark humor. When they did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. They saw their lord fallen to the floor, dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. It's just... If, if you dig into the text, there's just time after time after time. This is how it, these heroes escape, isn't it? There's just, you, you come to the moments in the story, time after time, you think, oh, they're going to catch him. Oh, they're going to catch him. Oh, they're going to catch him. And they don't catch him. Not only does he get to assassinate the king and turn this whole story on its head, but he gets away scot-free. And the listeners around the campfire are jumping as Eddie the Eagle sort of sneaks off back home. Verse 27, when he arrived there in Ephraim, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, into your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong, all awesome soldiers. Not one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. That's awesome, you might say. That's a great story, Ash. I'm, he's, he's become one of my favorite Old Testament characters. As, just in, as you tell me that story, I'd not heard of him before, and now I'm on side. That's a really good story. But he's, what do I do with that? He killed a guy. Three things, real quick. Why does it help us? Firstly, we forget, we forget in our lives very quickly that the, that the main thing that it's about is salvation, is being saved. So much, we have so much, um, even, when we have, even with the best life plans, even when we just we really narrow it down and, go, and we go, life's about this. Even when it's like that, even when you're like, yep, I know what life's about, it's like this, I'm not going to miss that. Even when you're like that, it becomes about so much random specific details, doesn't it, life? Do you get that? It becomes about, I'm really down because I can't fix the hoover, or I can't pay this guy, or I'm falling out with this person, or my boss is a pain. And you, 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 can, really, you can have the plan in your head, my life's like this, and yet you can have all these details that it actually becomes about. Christianity can be a lot like that. You're like, yes, I know what it's about, and yet often the reality is it becomes about, like, I, 
I can't get on with this person. This annoys me. I get caught up on this detail. There's, there's loads going on in this story of Ehud. There's loads, there's loads of color. There's loads of dark and light. There's loads of funny details. But the main point of the story, and you can see it there in verse 15, is this is essentially, as the rest of the Bible is, and don't miss this, it's essentially about salvation. It's essentially about realizing that you need to be saved. See what it says in verse 15? Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, a savior, Ehud. That's the, that's the nub of the text. They get to a point where they realize they need a savior. This text is really helpful. It really helps us understand, I think, just what salvation is. First thing it helps us see is that we really underestimate the power of sin. You see that? In the t- we really underestimate the power of sin. We've got, I think we've got no idea. We, we've got no idea. We forget very easily, churchy people, Christian people, the whole world, we forget very easily what the world looks like when we walk away from God and how perilous it is. And that's what happens to Israel in this moment. They just, they just end up in and amongst it with the Canaanites without really thinking about it without it really becoming a big deal. And they're still God's people. They're still this holy bunch of people. They're still all circumcised. They're still under the promises of God. And yet, they've just, without recognizing the power of sin, they've, they've ended up right in and amongst this crazy Canaanite practice where there is just real evil stuff happening. And they didn't realize it. When, I think that sometimes... As we go through our life, we, we can do the same sort of thing. We can just not clock the seriousness of sin. Use that word, sin, the idea of just not following God's ways, not thinking that God's ways are important. We, we, can, we can kind of think, maybe even like the Israelites, that, that sins are just like little bullets that you can dodge. Sometimes you, sometimes I think we we think about we think about what sin like that. We just think, oh yeah, it's just like an odd random thought that comes into my head, and you, like almost you can just see it as these specific bits of life that you can kind of avoid. I think maybe Israel had that idea in the back of its head. Maybe we can maybe we can just dodge our way through this. We're really helped, I think, by a picture of what sin is and what sin does in this text. Sin is not little bullets that you can dodge. Otherwise, you try and have a different salvation path. Sin is like an, I think that sin, and I think it's really helpful to get this, it's more like a nuclear bomb has gone off. When I read through the Bible, start to finish, that's what, that's what I see. I don't see it being little pot shots from the devil, anything like that. I see it like a nuke, a nuke has gone off and it has just covered the whole world and the whole world is kind of stuck in the wake of it. And you can see that in the text. The, the, the Israelite people, Paul talked the other week about this, just this spiral that they just can't get out of. Sins like that. Just like you think you've dealt with it and it just comes back around again. Even, even the heroes in these stories all, all carry knives and all are ready to kill people. That is, that is the mess of sin. This is, this is what sin is. It's messy. It covers over us. 
Sin is like this. It's like generations of hate that build up into wars, that ruin lands and kill millions of people. When you think about sin, think, think about it like that. Think, don't just think the little things. Think about generations upon generations of angry thoughts, of bitterness, that just leads whole people groups into trouble. Sin is the legacy of a wrong view of sex. Sin is that. Sin is, sin is as dark as that. Sin is not just, ooh, I need to watch myself with this sort of thing. I need to keep an eye on that. Sin is, sin is not, and like, you can, I can just dodge my way through this the rest of my life. That's, that's not the nature of sin. You'll get done over by it if you think of it like that. Sin leads to like, the oppression of, of, of women. This kind of sin, sexual sin, leads to whole millions of blokes having the wrong view of women hooked on pornography. You know, year on year on year, leading to problem after problem after problem, leading to misrelationships, leading to a bad view of women. And it just comes back round and round and round and round. Sin is like a legacy of, of greed. Just loads of greedy people who want more and more stuff, which means we can never really get to equality ever. And there's always going to be billions of plastic in our sea because we just want so much stuff. This is sin. Sin's like this. Sin's not just little bullets we can dodge. Don't plan for Christian life just thinking, I'm just going to duck this. Don't think that salvation is just sneaking through. Sin is like a nuclear bomb has gone off and it has coated the whole world. And we're all looking around to think, how can we get through this? It was so important in this text. And this was really hard to read, but you can see it again in in, in verse 12 of the text, that God let the people fall into it even more. In verse 12, do you see that? Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. The Israelites were subject to Eglon for 18 years. He let them into it. Why did he let them into it? Because he doesn't love them? No, because he wanted them to grasp the horror of their sin, the power of of sin. And what did they do? Heart of the story, you can miss it. They turned and they screamed to God. This, I think this is why the story is helpful because if you recognize, if you look around at the world and you recognize that the problem is sin, if you have that mindset, if you look at the world and you recognize that it's people been away from God and that's the problem, then there's only really one way you can go. You can cry out to God and that's it. Otherwise, you're going to try and figure out a million different ways to deal with the problems of, of the world. That, I think that is what salvation is. We, in our lives, it's real easy just to make it like Christianity and our faith and walking with God. It's real easy to make it about a million different things. It's really easy to try and plot a path. But actually, it's about waking up every day, looking around and assessing the world and going, the world's the way it is because it's covered in sin. I'm the way I am because I'm soaked in it. And I only have one way to go for help, and that is God, because he's the only person that can deal with that. That's the first thing. It's about recognizing the weight of sin and recognizing that we need to be saved. And it's so easy just not to think that for the next 50 years of your life. Dead easy. 
just to forget that that's an issue. And this, that's kind of the story of these people in Israel. They just don't clock it. And God says, no, it's this. It's calling out to me because you see that the world's messed up. Next point, God does and ultimately will use the humble things of this world to shame the proud. So King Eglon, not just a fat man for the sake of being a fat man in the story, not just a fattest story, he's like a pantomime baddie. All the listeners can hear about this guy and go, oh, they can take against him. You can kind of go, yeah, this guy. He's the guy who's hoarded it over us. That's why he is like he is. I said it before. He's like one of these guys that has just become untouchable because of his power and his authority. And he's, he sits there, and he's, even, he's got so little care for the threat of anybody else that he can dismiss his bodyguards and just send them all out of the room. And he's left alone with Ehud. And Ehud can single-handedly, this little Eddie the Eagle-esque, left-handed little guy from, ben, from the tribe of Benjamin can go and take his life and turn this whole story, this whole thing on its head. When you look at this story, you could, you could, you could take a bunch of things from it. You could say, there's great value to being left-handed. You could, you could, you could look at um, you could look at it and go, oh, it's about bravery. It's just about, being re- oh, it's just about being really smart or it's about being opportunistic. That's what the Christian walk should be. And you could look at it and you could see all those stories. Or you could look at it, I think like the Hebrew people looked at it and go, this is a, this is a little guy from nowhere. It must be God. It could only be God. Only God could do this. I think sometimes when we live out our faith, I don't know if you have this, But when we live out our faith, and you try and aspire to some of these traits that are in the Christian vocabulary, kindness, gentleness, forgiveness, it feels to me sometimes like I'm causing myself to literally disappear. Do you know what I mean? Have you ever had that? When you, if, you, if, you try and, if you're trying to do this, if you're, if, if you're reading this book, the Bible, and you, you see the words of Jesus, and you see the words of the Apostle Paul, and you feel called to this lifestyle, and you think, right, yeah, I need to be gentle, I need to be loving, I need to be forgiving, I need to be a guy who prays. I need to be a woman who reads the Bible. When you, as, you, as you absorb all this stuff, sometimes it feels to me like you literally, in the world around us, in and amongst it, you literally kind of cause yourself to disappear. You disappear, into the char- you disappear to become somebody like Ehud, somebody who becomes insignificant from an insignificant place. But in moments like this, I think when we, when we face the giant battles that we've got in life, and we want to arm ourselves in every single way we can. When we face the traumas in life, if we face those traumas, if we're in those moments and we continue to make ourselves less in those moments, if we continue to be humble and peaceful and kind, if we do that in those moments, then the people looking around don't see us. They see God in us in those moments. And in those moments too, they don't just see God, but we get to realize the power of God. Uh, Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world 
to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one would boast before him. Like, loads of times, you get to be a Christian for another 50 years. It's going to be loads of times when you're going to feel squeezed and tiny and like you're causing yourself to disappear. And you're going to think logically in your head, I must be doing it wrong. I must be in the wrong place. Here's what I think the Bible says to us every now and again. I, says it, I think it says, in these moments, when we feel like this, if we're feeling like this about our lives, this is the moment when people see God in us. When we don't face those moments, think, right, I need to just really man up. I need to go and do some bodybuilding, something like that. When we, when in those moments, we remain humble and we remain a child of God, then people get to see him. Last point. More than anything else, God wants our hearts. Why, if this story is about loving your neighbor, why, if it's all about getting to that point in our Christian service where we love our neighbor and we forgive other people and all that kind of stuff, why do we need to sit under the story of Ehud and his knife? Why do we need, why do we need to get romantically involved with this guy? Why do we need to fall in love with this story? We're back to the Romeo and Juliet question. Why do we... With the Romeo and Juliet question, why do we need to go through all that romantic yarn, all that love story, if they're just going to die at the end? Why do we do that? If you've ever read through the book of Romeo and Juliet, I don't know if you have, by the time you've got to the end of it, you don't, you don't just understand romance. Any author worth their salt, there's millions of them, can write about romance. When you get to the end of Romeo and Juliet, you know the high possibilities of love. And because, because you've gone on that journey and seen the high possibilities of love, you understand at the same time the tragedy when they kill each other at the end. You grasp in a real way the tragedy of that. And if you hadn't, if you hadn't have dragged yourself through this romantic story, if you hadn't have sold yourself to it, if you hadn't have felt the pain of Romeo and Juliet, if you hadn't seen them fall in love, by the time you get to the, the end of it, you would never have, have grasped the tragedy. And as you read it, your heart aches. Because you realize, more than just it being a romantic story, this is love, this kind of perfect love, this kind of falling in love stuff. This is a possibility this happily ever after stuff is a possibility and yet it's only a possibility that comes around for a short time for us isn't it and for some never and you read this story and you go yes i get the tragedy of that i get the tragedy of that and your heart aches do you ever look round at the world and feel like that i think the world is like that a lot of the time we know We know that it can be great. We know the endless possibilities that come with it. And every now and again, heroes come along that raise our expectations high. But then we're faced with that tragedy again. That's what the story of Judges tells us. Ehud comes along 
raises the bar. Everyone loses themselves. Everyone gets excited. They're all around this campfire. They're like, yes, this hope again. This hope, we can celebrate the hope that comes again. And as he stabs Eglon in the stomach, for a, for a moment, the people watching on go, yes, we've got justice. For eight, 18, 18 years of him being reigning over us, we've got a sense of justice. And everyone watching on goes, yes, we've got a hero to celebrate. And for a time, he brings hope and he brings change and the people watch on. But what happens as the story progresses? This is the tragedy that we'll come back to week after week after week. This heroic act is forgotten about. This justice that was temporary is forgotten about. And in a lot of ways, of course, it's forgotten about. This is a man who stabbed somebody. It could never bring that kind of lasting change. And the people forget. They forget God. They forget his ways. And they return back to being in desperate times and in desperate measures again. And as we look at the world around us, we have that same, I think that same sense of tragedy. Every, every now and again we look around and our hearts and our hopes are raised. Somebody comes along and brings a little bit of light into the world and a little bit of hope and we all step up and we all go along with it and we all think this is great. And one of the great tragedies of life, I think, is as we look around, is the way this cycle comes back around where it doesn't quite work out that way. And we look, we look throughout history and we go, Did, didn't we learn this? Didn't we figure this out? Didn't this guy that came along in the 60s or the 50s or the the 40s when we were fighting with the Germans, didn't, didn't we look at that and didn't we learn some really crucial lessons that we were, you know, didn't, didn't we learn a better way in those moments? And yet we've forgotten it all again and our hearts ache. We know as human beings that being saved is a possibility. But none of the heroes that we fall for can keep it going. We either see through them or we forget what they've done Whatever it is, it falls away. Ehud is my new favorite character in the Old Testament. He's amazing. Left-handed legend. But if you're asking me, what does our world need right now? Does it need one of these heroes we kind of fall in love with? I don't think that's what the story is pointing to. We don't need another hero like Ehud. We don't need because we've got loads of them. We don't need another guy who can come along and with an act of violence bring temporary peace to the world. We don't need somebody else who can come along with an act of violence and bring a sense of temporary justice to the world. We don't need another guy that can come along and fight a war and turn the story of the world. We need a guy can't, it's not going to shove a knife in to turn the story. We need a guy who can take a wound to turn the story. We don't need a guy, man, the last thing we need is another guy who's going to come along with an act of violence, bring a temporary sense of justice to the world. We need a guy who's able to come along and be made a sacrifice for us so that the world gets a sense of justice. We don't need anybody else to come along and start another 
war, heaven forbid, another big war that turns the story temporarily. So there's a temporary time of peace and appeasement and forgiveness. We don't need any more temporal solutions. What our world needs, what our world is aching for, what the heroes in Judges point us to is that we need somebody like Jesus. And if it might feel, if you've never been to church before, it might feel like a trite conclusion to the sermon. The more I read this book, the more I look around at the pain and the aches of this world, the aches and the pains of this world. And the more I get carried away in the moments that bring us a bit of joy and a bit of hope, and then fall, and I have to watch the 10 o'clock news again, and I'm again seeing a story of tragedy, the more I realize that the hope for us is not in grabbing another hero or another distraction. It's in a hero that brings peace and love and joy.